Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orling and uh, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today, we'll be continuing our series on unpacking sovereignty. This is our fifth show, and we will be looking at a couple of key figures in the framing of the Maine Constitution and the taking of tribal lands and what happens as the new state of Maine begins its relationship with the Wabanaki tribes. We continue our conversation with Professor Harold Prince, a native from the Netherlands. Dr. Harold uh, Prince is a distinguished professor of anthropology emeritus who taught at universities in the US and Europe. He conducted research in numerous countries, including Argentina and Canada, but especially in the Wabanaki homeland. And Dr. Darren Ranko, Dr. Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation. He is associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American programs at the University of Maine. He has a master's of studies in environmental law from Vermont Law School and a PhD in social anthropology from Harvard University. So let's begin our conversation. We'll start with Professor Prince and let's talk a little bit about the, some of the, the people that were involved in writing the constitution. Um, now we know that William King uh, was one and he was the president of the convention. Is there anything that uh, you can say about King uh, or, or just people, or just the uh, writers in general, Harold? Yeah, William King um, lived uh, actually just um, downriver from where I'm now living uh, here in Bath. Um, he, um, there's still the King's house. Uh, I almost daily pass it. Um, and it was at a very great location right near the Days Ferry across the Kennebec River. And he indeed uh, was uh, one of the... Um, major movers uh, toward uh, independence of Maine when he was in the uh, state legislature in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, but he was very briefly governor of, um, of Maine. He was the first, but very brief, and then was appointed, if I'm, my memory is correct, uh, to an ambassadorship. Uh, and he was then replaced um, rather quickly. So his impact uh, while governor in uh, residing in Portland, which at that time was uh, the capital of Maine, or rather the seat of government of Maine. Uh, I'm not sure how much of a direct practical impact he had as governor of Maine, uh, given the, his short uh, term in office. Okay, and then there was, I think you know a little bit about James Bowden, who was also a member of that convention. Yeah, James Bowden, um, uh, who uh, also had a diplomatic career, um, but is primarily known here in Maine for his uh, so-called philanthropy, uh, whereby uh, he uh, donated land that um, came uh, to him uh, as an heir of his father, Governor James Bowden. And to honor uh, Governor James Bowden, who was a member of the so-called Kennebec proprietors, um, which was a land company that, uh, based on very dubious uh, so-called Indian deeds, uh, claimed massive uh, land holdings in the Kennebec um, Valley, pretty much from Merrimeeting Bay all the way up to uh, Norwich Walk, near Norwich Walk, 
which of course is the site of um, the headquarters of the uh, Kennebec Abenaki that had been burned down in 1724. So there's a massive land grab by a number of uh, wealthy merchants um, uh, in uh, Massachusetts, primarily concentrated in and around Boston, James Bowden being one of them. Um, and they uh, asserted uh, ownership, property rights uh, over these vast tracts of land. I think the total was 3 million acres, if my memory serves correctly here. And so James Bowden III, his son, became an inheritor after his father's death of these land holdings. And in um, what now is the township of Bowden and Bodenham, all named after the family of Bowden, donated that land toward the founding of the college in 1796. There was no real college at that time, um, but uh, the, the, the groundwork of that was laid by these um, uh, grants. Uh, and at the same time, the Piepsicot um, company uh, had uh, in the town of Brunswick had allocated land for the actual building of Bowdoin. So right from the beginning, you see that the emerging elite in the state of Maine with land holdings uh, in Maine based on defrauding indigenous peoples. And I say here defrauding because the Kennebec Abenaki have been in numerous instances protested the dispossession of their lands by the so-called Indian deeds. And if you scrutinize them, you realize that um, these are um, highly dubious documents uh, in many, many ways. And so the foundation of that wealth in terms of land in Maine, included by the James Bowden family uh, that led the, to the financing of Bowden College is ill-gotten uh, wealth. Uh, there was other wealth that I cannot judge on, but uh, we know that the land holdings in the Kennebec Valley were, were, were basically a criminal dispossession, uh, to put the term on it. So yes, so James Bowden and um, King, and uh, but also the, the author, James Sullivan, who was the, the uh, governor of Massachusetts and the first author of the history of Maine, published in 1795, if my memory serves here, uh, you see how that writing of history right from the beginning uh, with James Sullivan, but then later with uh, Williamson, also a um, briefly governor of Maine uh, early on, uh, but they had all vested interest in the dispossession of indigenous peoples and have slanted uh, in highly um, problematical ways, not only when they first are in charge of the political and economical factors, but then they begin to write the collective memory that we ourselves then depend on in reconstructing what happened in the past. And so the theme of your program, uh, Unwrapping Sovereignty, we have to work our ways through these writings, much of which is very valuable, but then there's repeated omissions and there's repeated um, uh, statements that need scrutiny. In other words, the, a critical evaluation of the two foundational texts of main history, the first one by James Sullivan and the second one by William Williamson, uh, that has created a whole foundation that has cracks in it, if you will, and um, problems. And generations of main uh, students who later became lawyers and legislators have been uh, informed by those kind of texts and uh, then start writing their own uh, memoirs, which again uh, are problematical because of omissions. 
And in an earlier broadcast, we talked about James Lehman, a professor at Bates College, who wrote the standard work, if you will, main in the American Revolution. And you see how that omission of Wabanaki participation in the liberation of the United States, how that is seeping through all the way to living historians today who are very, very good, but have blinders on the way they are themselves looking at the past. And this is why that revision is so important, a critical revision through as much as we can to the facts. Uh, there's a lot of um, revisionist history that I myself am critical of because people are making another story up. And I don't think you can combat problems with creating other problems. Um, this is where I think um, scholarship comes in that has integrity and can withstand uh, scrutiny from, from the opposition party, if you will. So and if I'm making a charge against Professor Lehman, who I greatly respect, but have a charge that his uh, history of um, Maine in the uh, American Revolution is flawed, and I don't have the data to back that up, I should have shut up. <laughs> um, I do want to point out, and correct me if I'm wrong, Harold, I think that the writers of the Constitution were basically um, uh, people with uh, military background and maybe uh, some, well, yeah, lumber interests, land interests, uh, attorneys, and those types of background individuals framed and, and wrote uh, the Constitution. Of course, it was like a mirror of the Massachusetts Constitution and a lot of the same uh, officials from Massachusetts just uh, jumped over into Maine. So uh, I just wanted to point out a couple of those uh, that are gonna show up later in our discussion. And one of them is uh, Judge Thomas Bartlett, uh, who we'll talk about later in the uh, negotiations of the four townships. And Ezekiel Whitman, who, who later becomes the Chief Justice and is, uh, gives an opinion in Murch v. Tomer, which is a very uh, precedent-setting law case in Indian law in Maine. So I just wanted to mention those few people and we'll get to those uh, later. Now the constitution itself, um, we, we were talking a bit about, first of all, we, we discussed some of the language in the constitution and, and Darren, you had some language you wanted to, to discuss that you've been uh, researching a bit. So you wanna? Yeah, no, thanks Donna and just, just to, put a, a nice fine point because I think this helps me explain this language maybe where it's coming from is uh, you know thinking about the founders of Maine uh, as a group of individuals with particular set of interests is really really helpful I, it 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 hasn't been so much articulated as as Harold pointed out and and critically examined what those what their commitments are but I mean it, the, the great number of them are, were land speculators much like you know many of the founders of the American Republic you know I think they were really invested in land as 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 commodity and uh, interested in seizing the opportunity of the creation of a new state um, and um, uh, Harold mentioned the Kennebec proprietors as, you know, that's a great example of all that in terms of, you know, really 
using this moment of, of, of transfer of control to do further land speculation uh, and further seizure of, uh, of indigenous um, uh, lands and territories that had been previously promised. Uh, and this comes up again, right in through the 1830s um, as well. Uh, so in terms of the state constitution, you know, I've been really interested in this um, language that appears in the electors section, which uh, in the, the original language in, in the electors section, you know, says only, you know, male citizens uh, above the age of 21 can vote. Uh, and then uh, except, and then it has this class of people who cannot vote. A paupers, women, those under guardianship, as well as Indians not taxed. So that language, Indians not taxed, is a recognition of a form of sovereignty um, because it recognizes, and this is the Maine is one of only one of only five states that does this. Um, and, and I'll say like the, the contradictions of it are on the one hand, it recognizes Indians not taxed. They don't say Indians can't vote. It says Indians not taxed. So it presumes that Indians have their own taxation abilities or are somewhat separate as citizens or non-citizens um, from the, the governing public or, or the governed public. What is interesting about that, of course, is that means a form of recognition that they can still be, uh, and I think this was the thinking at the time, that they can, uh, that the state could still make uh, treaties or, or, or land broad land agreements, and they would use this language and this supposition of, of separateness and sovereignty to, to do that work, much like Massachusetts had done uh, as a state before. And of course, these are these state-based treaties are in direct violation of the 1790 Non-Intercourse Act and that leads to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act. Um, so these treaties are basically illegal um, according to federal law, but the, the sort of the twin, and, and this is I think that this tension that I, I like to explore in looking at this language is that by recognizing, you know, political separateness on the one hand of of the tribes in the state constitution through this Indians not tax language, this um, creates a space of kind of otherness or ways to deal with the Indians. Um, but then quickly thereafter, um, it, is, it is quite clear that the state is, is using that more as this sort of land deal kind of orientation to treaty or take lands. And, and because some of the first acts of legislature are um, you know, basically regulating the in entirety as much as they can of, of Indian life. So it's, it's very, it's, it's these contradictions um, that are um, revealing into the motivations, right? So it, it's an inconsistent, you know, on the one hand we're recognizing sovereignty, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're doing this as a way to, um, again, take lands. Uh, I, I think that's a pretty clear um, operational um, reason for it. But it, it leaves open the, that space, right, that there is a potential form of recognition that Indians are separate, have their own separate powers um, through this language. And I think that's a fair interpretation for lawyers uh, to make. But the state acts 
um, very quickly to um, take control over and create um, you know, some of the first kind of agreements or laws are about basically instilling guardianship. So control, paternalist, racist control over, over as much of Indian life as they possibly can through this emerging Indian agent uh, system that, that Harold also referenced. And, and I, I'm kind of thinking that through um, the use of the, recognizing the uh, tribal uh, sovereignties that they can give they can sign away vast tracts of land. They don't have to exactly. deal with a whole bunch of individuals, each giving them a deed. So if there's millions of uh, tribal territory and they can just get a majority by treaty, uh, that's, the way to, that's the way to go. Right, and, and it sets up, I mean, I know it will move towards this, but it sets up you know, a whole host of- Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanna move towards the four townships, but I wanna back yeah. up too. Yeah, for and, uh, sure. I, no, I remember Harold talking about in the 18, uh, 1816 treaty where the Penobscots were kind of felt forced to give up 10 townships. Uh, you wanna talk about that, Harold? Sorry, could you repeat the question? Yeah, the, uh, the 1816, uh, when the Penobscots uh, gave up like 10 townships. Yeah, the, um, uh, so what happened was, um, let me first quickly hook back on some comments that uh, Darren made. Um, and the term that came to mind is structural racism. Um, and these are words that most people hear, but don't fully uh, understand sometimes what these terms structural mean. But structural in essence is an organized way of a total systemic racism where the entire system is based on in this case, white males uh, supremacy. And um, the Indians not taxed, another statement that you just referred to was on the guardianship. The whole point about these Indian agents is of course, that the state itself is emerging as a self-appointed guardian of indigenous peoples in Maine, who are thereby declared incompetent and in the same class of people as children and the criminal insane, or the, the criminals and the insane, and in American Indians. So we get here a weird element that they are have property, so that doesn't exclude them. They have ownership of land, uh, albeit sharply reduced. So that doesn't disqualify them. But it, what disqualifies them is that they have been placed under guardianship, which means directly that their sovereignty, their capacity and recognition of self-government and self-determination are being hollowed out. And that happens through these um, uh, state-appointed Indian agents. And you create thereby a situation that in um, scholarly terms is referred to as internal colonialism. Uh, so today we talk about decolonization, but we don't often realize that the colonies are not just external overseas like Guam or uh, in the case of uh, my own country, historically, what's now Indonesia, these were external colonies. But the United States as a settler nation has done what New Zealand has done with respect to the Maori or Chile has done with the Mapuche, two groups that I know Donna has been very interested in. Um, but that's happened also in the United States and Canada where internal colonies have been created. And if I may give a definition for your audience, uh, what we mean with that, um, it refers, internal colonialism refers to, quote, a state 
where an independent country has within its own boundaries given special legal status to groups that differ culturally from the dominant group and has created a distinct administrative machinery to handle such groups, end quote. So here you see that the state of Maine and before that the state of Massachusetts is creating these kind of entities first through the Indian agent and then later through an entire uh, Department of Indian Affairs, right? And the head of these departments of Indian Affairs until the 1960s were never native peoples. They were always white ma males and with the federal Department of uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, it was Mohawk, I, if I remember his name correctly, it was Bruce, Bruce was his name, it was Mohawk. He was the first in, native person in charge. And in Maine, if my memory serves well, um, is, it was John Stevens, um, uh, who may have been the very first um, who was in charge of uh, Indian Affairs. And I think that was in the course of the uh, 1960s. So the, these were transformative periods that later lead to the Maine Indian land claims in the 1970s, settled out of court in 1980. And now we're talking about the debris, if you will, um, of unresolved issues that come out of the 1980 uh, Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act. And, but to come back to um, uh, 1816, we see uh, prior to the uh, actual treaty signing of 1818, we see that the Penobscot people having already lost a huge amount of land um, downriver from um, the head of the tide. So the entire coastal lands have already been dispossessed in the wake of um, the last uh, French and Indian War, so-called French and Indian War, that ended in 1763. So the entire seacoast, all the way up to the head of the tide at Eddington, Eddington uh, just north of Bangor, the, which is the end of the nav navigation for uh, seafaring schooners, uh, all that land was already dispossessed uh, by 1763 without a clear treaty that whereby native peoples agree that these lands have been surrendered. They don't get compensated for it. And then we see uh, the wrangling uh, all the time that happens in the wake of the American Revolution beginning in 1784 when Henry Knox, amongst others, is trying to get the Penobscot, including Chief Arno to sign away um, land um, uh, above the head of the tide, above the, the, the falls, the first falls in the river. Uh, Chief Orono and the tribal council reject. They're trying, the whites are again trying to dispossess it by a legal document in um, two years later in 1786, again rejected and again rejected 1788. And finally with the knife on their throat, they signed in 1796, the first treaty. And that measures in total nine townships of the so-called Old Indian Purchase, later referred to, uh, that signed away on both sides of the Penobscot River, but not the river itself, nor the islands above the falls. And that's a crucial uh, distinction that I'm making, because the assumption has been that the river itself was also somehow signed away, and that was not the case. If you look at the text of the 1818 treaty, um, which is pretty much uh, reproduced in the 1820 text when Maine takes over from Massachusetts, uh, you, you see that the river itself, the artery, the lifeline for the Penobscot Nation, that that was not uh, signed away. That's very explicit for anyone who wants to look at the text of that 1818 treaty. The reason why in 1818 the Penobscot, with growing pressure on them, including uh, threats uh, to their lives, uh, people were chased out of their canoes, kept in the cold water, uh, a lot of harassment, very dangerous, uh, was happening to 
the, uh, the, the native people who were very vulnerable and by that time were very small in number and vastly outnumbered by whites um, uh, from Old Town downriver uh, that uh, basically to hold on something they were forced to give up more of their land. A major reason why they were reduced to begging almost was a, um, a eruption of a gigantic volcano in what is now Indonesia on the island of Sumbawa, that was Mount Tambora, and that created, a, that erupted in 1815, massive amount of ash was spewed into the atmosphere, and that led then in 1816 to the so-called year without the summer. So the Penobscot, who had food gardens uh, on Indian Island, but also elsewhere on the other islands, uh, their crop did not ripen at all. And that meant that they couldn't produce their own corn, not their own beans, but in particular corn, but not beans. So they were starving because um, a key element of their food supply came under um, severe threat. And so they had no resources to fall back on. Uh, and that meant that they turned to the state of Massachusetts um, for help. And that opened the door for Massachusetts to start saying, we will help, but you will pay for it. It's like a bank that says, um, I'm going to give you uh, money, but we take a mortgage on your uh, property. And then you get into a similar process as a reverse mortgage. Every time you get something, uh, the bank uh, it takes. And so in this case, the state of Massachusetts and later by Maine, every time their so-called largesse uh, was dearly paid for and later actually paid for uh, out of the Indian fund that was acted as if there was a gift from the state, but came straight out of the Indian fund. There was the resources of the tribe that uh, came out of the sale of these lands, which all of which were sold, sold under duress. Okay. Um. So now, when after Maine uh, approves their constitution and, and they, they become a state, they're still you know, looking for land, lots of land. It's always been land. So uh, in these treaties, the Penobscot has, again, I, well, I think we said this last time was that we've continuously set aside and kept the uh, four townships. And uh, so I guess my question is, uh, what was so valuable about these four townships? And I guess they were, now Darren, do you know, it was like six miles by six miles each township. And I'm not sure how much uh, <clears throat> acreage that was and why, why was the land so valuable at that time? Darren, you oh yeah um well actually I think you know Harold has also has this information you know I'm like Harold's gonna talk to I want to hear but, uh, but no I, I think you know it's you know the the resources are not just land so there are really important timber resources in these in these uh, townships um and you know the location to the Penobscot River I mean this is this is basically they are setting up the structure for the economic uh, largesse of um, mid uh, 19th century Maine, which is the timber industry, setting up vast tracts of lands to be cut and setting up a system using the river as a way to, to um, you know, I mean, this idea of land on either side of the river is not an accident, it's, it's an access point 
to the highway system for the processing of the of the timber. Um, so I think you know this is the the double you know the double largesse that's created by seizing um, indigenous lands is um, first you know extraction um, and then secondly you know after the extraction actually creates right land for farming and and individual property ownership right so and this had been a well known source of uh, wealth uh, in in the rest of New England and 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 other parts of uh, you know at the time through the Upper Midwest as well. So this technique was well known and well worn of seizing the lands close to waterways, um, creating timber resource wealth uh, and processing. Which by the time we get to this part of the 19th century, you know things are becoming more and more efficient in terms of the processing times and the ability to use waterways to uh, to sawmills and, and all this other uh, other stuff. But I think this again, it's it's you know you have to think like a <laughs> you know it, it's always fun because as an indigenous scholar, like a lot of us like to play these games where we pretend we're colonists because we actually understand their thinking very well and because we've experienced it we've like we try to understand their actions and their motivations and it is precisely this right so you win this double win of extraction that creates you know a mechanisms for farming or individual property ownership um, but that's only best done after the timber is is taken off of the off of the land so we see this repeated uh, all throughout the early, you know, early American Republic in, in, in taking of, of Indian lands. Hey, Harold. Your turn. A, a comment on your question, and I concur with uh, Darren, uh, but a comment on your question about size and value. Um, just to give you an idea, a township is indeed defined six miles by six miles, right? So six miles square. Uh, that's a total of 23,240 acres, to give you an idea, right? So if you have um, land like 10, you just multiply it by 10. And typically, uh, each of these uh, townships would be uh, subdivided in sections, in this case, 36 sections, each of which 640 acres, and they could be uh, subdivided again in lots. So each section can get subdivided in 16 lots of 40 acres each. And that's kind of important because these are the units that the land surveyors deal with. But there's one thing to look at the map. It's another thing to look at land. I here myself have some land, but part of it is marsh, part of it is granite, and not ready for cult cultivation at all. So um, when people buy these lands unseen, very often they don't know what they are buying. They only know that on the map it looks um, at the size of X amount of miles or X amount of acreage. Uh, but you may actually later find out that uh, there's no access uh, from that acreage to any kind of river, for example, because that's all before their roads. And so as Darren just, just mentioned, the importance of the Penobscot River was not so much the fish, uh, which was very important for the, the, the Penobscot, but it were the mill sites, right? And later for the booms, it uh, was extremely important for the, for the booms and for the dams. So the, the river itself um, it, uh, was not necessarily so much on the horizon of the Massachusetts negotiators in 1818. Uh, what they wanted was A, 
timber, right? Uh, and that was on land and B, access to uh, the rivers in order to get the timber in rafts uh, or otherwise get it down to the sawmills. And then from there down uh, the falls to the navigable uh, area of the, the river, which was Bangor. And that's how you get Bangor emerging within a few decades as the lumber capital of the world. So these is staggering resources uh, upriver, but all these timber, we forget sometimes needs to be cut. And so what you get here is that these um, timber companies, these logging operators, not only have people to man the sawmills or to put the, uh, the timber uh, on top of the uh, sco uh, lumber schooners, but you have the loggers in these crews. And so by the 1820s or 1830s, I did a calculation somewhere, um, but the ratio of American Indian, Penobscot Indian man above, let's say 14, 15 years old and loggers was 1000 to one by the 1820s to 1830s. So the ratio is so mind boggling in terms of being overwhelmed by these, you know, um, loggers, white loggers in these logging camps. And you're out there deer hunting or moose hunting. And these guys are all armed. Um, and collectively, you know, they can seek retribution when they find your wigwam on one of the islands in the, in the river if you have crossed them. So the intimidation element of just numbers, if you think about the total number of Penobscot, um, it was about 300 to 350 people in the time that we are talking about, of which about 70 adult men. So not that many people were out there. And then you have these Indian agents who are many of whom are militia um, officers. And you realize that when the chiefs are forced to sign these documents, that they almost stand no chance whatsoever. And I come back to the concept of structural racism. The racism is ideological in the sense that native peoples are A, seen as an inferior people who are incapable of managing their own affairs. B, they are doomed therefore uh, to, be, to become extinct within one or two or three generations. So that solves the problem, if you will, right? The Indian problem can be solved by extinction. And the literature is rife in that period of the last of the Mohawk or the last of the Mohegan or the last of the Wampanoag or the last, you name it. So it's everybody is kind of waiting for American Indians to vanish. Uh, and they are basically in the holding pattern like a zoo for rare animals uh, when they are getting these reduced reservations allocated. And so um, the ideology of racism matches the racism in the legislature, right? When the lawmakers are getting together, chosen by people from lumber districts or from export uh, by schooners of um, merchandise. So these people are there um, chosen by the electors. And we already have seen when Darren was commenting who can, who is eligible to vote by constitution. And you realize that the legislators are doing the will of the people, but the people is a very small number of people because it excludes First of all, American Indians in our case, in this case uh, that we're talking about, but also women and anybody of, uh, who has no property. So um, the fact that these legislators then concoct laws and legislation that is then signed off on by the governor, it is not at all surprising that these laws reflect the reality on the ground, which is a reality of dispossession of indigenous peoples on every level. And, um, 
So you get it from the economic base, you get it to the political structure, you get it to the social organization. You talked earlier, uh, Donna, about these networks of people, right, who write the constitution, who are sitting there in the legislature. You yourself, as a, as a tribal representative, Donna, you've been sitting in the legislature, but you never were able, if my memory serves correctly, serves me correctly, you were not allowed to vote. Is that correct? That is correct. So here we see it. So you're a token, to put it very bluntly, right? You're a token, yeah. you're allowed to sit right. there and shut up. Yeah. And um, so that legacy of structural racism based on a, a white male supremacy that we talked about before, that these words sound uh, very provocative. And I know that, um, but anyone who tells me that this is not true, show me the data. Because the data show every data that you see is a complex of white male supremacy that creates and holds in, 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 in power that um, structure that we refer to as based on racism uh, and so forth. Yeah, and just to follow up, you know, and, and this can lead us to the next thing, I think, Donna, the, um, you know, Harold mentioned the, you know, the dubious nature of deeds and whatnot, but um, I mean, there's so much of this, e even with the quote unquote agreements, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, he also referenced, you know, the Indian agents kind of served as a cover for um, fraudulent and illegal activities and seizures by, by, by this sort of double paying kind of arrangement that he described quite well, which is, you know, if if a land was un, was seized illegally, then you know the as Indians, you know, we would have to pay back or buy our own land again through using our own resource. Like this is so rife, and the more you learn about it, it is so amazingly angering. How just the system? I mean, its its structure is so unjust, and Harold was just talking about it. But even at the edges of it. You know, when people, when, when they break the rules of it, it, it covers for them. I mean, this is sort of these definitions. I mean, this still happens, right? Like, you know, the signal of once you start to say, oh, well, if you're, if you don't have a deed, uh, although there's like one or two major exceptions, uh, like you don't have a deed to cut timber and someone just goes and was like, oh, screw that. We're going to cut the timber and we're going to sell it, blah, blah, blah. And uh, nine times out of 10, you know, the Indians sort of pay to clean it up. Um, there were one or two cases early on in the 1820s where they're like, the Indian agents like, you probably shouldn't do that. But if you dig further, you know, and they get them like involved in illegal activities. And the only reason they pursued those cases was because that Indian agent had already promised this illegal timber to someone else. So it wasn't even like, it's just so mind boggling, you know, in terms of how, um, racist and dispossessive the whole orientation was um, and I just you know I just you know it's like it's bad enough that the structure is the way it is but it's like even at the edges of it like what happens to the land we still control it the Indian agent system is a total fraud and uh, rife with these contradictions right so back to the legislature when uh, as soon as Mamie comes to state I believe it was like within weeks of, of this, they send out uh, Joseph Tree to survey the Indian lands. Just to, it was like, I believe Harold was saying that 
you had to know it was on those lands. You know, you don't want to get swampland or anything like that. So you go out and you survey, then you see what's out there. So my, my guess is that these uh, four townships were sort of like crown jewels because they were right on the Penobscot River, uh, very, very desirable uh, for uh, lumber barons and, and for whoever to just, just take those lands and, and uh, take the, the trees off in it and, uh, and, and, and gain some wealth. So they send out uh, tree to do the to do the survey within weeks of convening, and then after they determine that the townships are valuable, highly valuable, uh, then they try to negotiate for those townships. They, they had some failing failings in the negotiations, um, but finally, when it uh, when it worked, when uh, uh, the two um, negotiators, Amos, I believe it was uh, Amos Roberts and uh, and Thomas Bartlett, went. They, the, they were chosen to go and negotiate that that land. So you're looking at uh, Roberts, who was a land baron, and uh, Bartlett. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if he was an attorney. He was a judge, or or what his background was, I think he was military background too. Uh, but they do the negotiations and the, and the tribes basically say, you know, after they find out what happened, say, this is fraudulent, it's, it's wrong. And, uh, and so, and, and later on down the road, you see that uh, Bartlett and, and Roberts uh, actually uh, benefited from this, this trade because they go out and they buy Indian land. But anyway, um, so tell me about, because this, this point in the history, the, the, the taking of these four townships was a big deal to the tribe because they had, they had uh, kept those for so long. And then all of a sudden they're, they're taken uh, fraudulently. So uh, who wants to start out to talk about that? I'll, I'll start out. I mean, this um, leads to, you know, um, a kind of political undoing within the tribe. So the story goes, of course, that this is a, this is a land negotiation, a kind of an aftermath of a treaty. Um, and you mentioned the negotiators for the state, you know, and, and on the other side, of course, we had, um, Governor Atien and, and Lieutenant Governor Neptune um, at, at the tribe. Um, and, you know, over a, a period of time, they agree to um, a, a kind of deed of conveyance. This is so the, the story goes, but only as long as all other Penobscot male heads of families approve the transaction, which never came. So actually there is, text of this um, in some of the archives um, about this sort of agreement that uh, it has to also have the signature or agreement of the heads of all the other families. Um, I mean, I don't know what went on to even get this other piece of it for <laughs> Atian and Neptune, um, what they thought they were agreeing to or how that was actually gonna go down. But it is out of this, um, discussion or 
you know, the land agents sort of, they bring this, you know, conveyance of deed to the legislature, even though the, uh, and they frame it in such a way that all the, they say, all the chief men of the tribe had, had provided the, the legitimacy of the transaction, which was completely untrue. Um, and then, you know, there's this large uprising as the legislature is meeting um, in, in Augusta and all, there's a huge Penobscot delegation that goes there in January of 1834 and challenge this sort of, as the legislature was finalizing the land transaction, the governor signs it, you know, just basically outright fraud, you know, people testifying, no one, you know, we, this did not meet the standard. We did not sign, uh, uh, the, you know, agree to this conveyance. And the and just because of the way it was framed by those land barons that you talked about to the legislature, they're like, oh, they say it's good. There's a couple of signatures from a couple of the native folks, you know, let's just push it through. Um, so I think it's, it, it, what what this means though this shakes the confidence um it, within the tribe of you know this our whole hereditary system of um governance so atian and neptune represent that that this you know has sort of a long-standing effect because of um uh you know this loss of probably the key, you know, it's like the key set of resources retained, you know, from the tribal point of view, like in, in, in the era of, you know, where there's uh, starting to emerge as a tim the timber industry, you know, all these things um, just, you know, this leads to this sort of factionalized new party, old party system. Some people point to this specific event. Of course, the state has a huge hand in manipulating this seeming, you know, uh, factionalism within the tribe, but it is more than just land. You know, it is more just this illegal taking of the land. It has this vast impact on tribal politics, govern governing um, within the community, like, um, people sort of remarked, you know, just, it just has this longstanding effect that, that made our tribe, Donna, you know, far less united going forward. Um, I mean, I think there is a kind of uh, working system that eventually develops even in this sort of old party to new party kind of governance structure, but it has these, you know, beyond these really important land resources being taken from us, it, it has this other kind of like strikes to the heart of like, can we maintain any of these territories that we, you know, our ancestors had treated uh, for to protect um, these four townships feel like one of the final blows of that. Good. May I um, briefly comment on uh, what Darren was uh, mentioning and that's important. He mentioned, uh, of course, to the new party and the old party uh, and the uh, quote factionalism end quote that um, anthropologists and ethnic historians have commented on. I've always found it very strange even to talk about factionalism because by definition, every democracy that I know it has factionalism. That's yeah. the nature of parties, right? So Agreed. you have um, the right wing and the left wing. Yo, that's very normal. You go to England, right? One of the oldest parliamentary um, the democracies under the monarch, but you have there the party in power, right? And then you have the opposition. So. It's a very normal structure to deal with 
um, quote, factionalism, because that's the nature of democracy. Um, only in a totalitarian regime would you have the elimination of opposition. So there's a strange standard that we have with respect to indigenous peoples that somehow, because they form a community and everything is supposedly by consensus and therefore everyone is always standing behind the leader. And that's not true. Anyone who looks at the history of the Penobscot nation or any nation for that matter, uh, you will see that there's always opposition and that is healthy because that means that that, that, that um, community if with all its divisions is cruising toward a certain outcome that it balances out the oppositional forces um, rather than alienating them or suppressing them. So uh, regarding um, the Adyen-Neptune conflict, which was probably somewhat there, that's, I don't think that's, that's fiction, um, but part of it is geographical. Um, John Adyen was living at Madame Amkak Point. Um, that's by canoe. Anybody who tries to canoe down upriver, for example, from Indian Island where John Neptune was living, that takes about two days or something like that to get there. So um, uh, the distance is considerable. Today we take a car, right, or you take a motorboat and you go upriver. That's a whole different thing than going by canoe. So uh, John Adian was uh, also, in terms of his ancestry, was very different than Neptune. Uh, he was part uh, non-indigenous. Um, is said to have been a descendant of Saint-Castin, one of the quite a number of people who are descendants of Saint-Castin, but also through Madakawando, um, the great chief of the late um, 1600s. Whereas the Neptune line uh, is said to have descended as an unadulterated, um, without any uh, non-indigenous blood, uh, also have descended from the Madakawando line. So in a way you have these two chiefs, one come through the native, pure native line, and the other one through the half French line. The native line of the Neptunes uh, is almost always associated with shamanic power. So that's never associated with uh, John Adian. Uh, Adian, the Adian family, you never hear about any shamanic power attributed to, to the Adian family, but in the Neptune family it is. So that's the line uh, that is in opposition, if you will, to um, the Métis line, the mixed blood line, whereby the advantage of the mixed blood line was, of course, that they were, through their French ancestry, were capable of, of being fluent in French, which was for a long time a very important asset. Uh, Adian, living farther away from the white English-speaking settlers uh, downriver, was far less fluent in English than John Neptune. So here we see a juxtaposition between the downriver group um, headed by the Neptune uh, family, historically, and then Madawamkag, that's where um, Adian is, which is closer toward Quebec, which for a long time still was where the um, connectivity was with the Roman Catholic priests and the baptism and so on. So you had a little chapel there as well. So Adian then is coming under huge pressure on that point and his house and barns are being burned down, his uh, fish weir is destroyed, and he has to flee with his family. His family is scared like, like crazy. Uh, they escape to Sugar Island, uh, so they set up a new home there. But that, of course, is very, um, that means they abandon at Wadawamkak Point, and that is where the military road goes to Holton. And the reason I bring that up is you talked about the value of that land. But the value of that land is not just acreage, it's not even just timber, however important, 
but it's also strategic for about uh, 7 million acres in disputed land in Northeast Maine. And the military road that goes right through across the bridge at Madawemkag, uh, crosses right through Ashland into Holton to these out um, uh, isolated small settlements that come under pressure from the British in North America, now called Canada. And that then leads then to the confrontation, which is so-called bloodless Aroostook War of 1839. And finally, the settlement of the boundary in 1842 in the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. But the whole positionality of, Mi'kma of uh, Penobscot land it cannot be separated from the frontier issue and the disputed international, uh, internationally disputed territory between uh, the United States and Canada. Okay, so now we've got to wind down here. We've only got a couple of more minutes. So <laughs> I know it seems like we just get into something and then we just have to, to stop. So I'm gonna give uh, uh, you a couple of minutes, uh, uh, whoever wants to go first to just make their last, what they wanna say before the, 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 the uh, show ends. Uh, I'll, I'll go first, happy to go first, uh, Donna, thanks. Sure. And uh, this is Darren <laughs> for your listeners. The um, you know, I, th I think, you know, the details all matter and, and there are many more to, sh to share. Um, I think, you know, one of the great lessons of these last two sessions we've had is just this structure um, that is both racist and colonial, internal colonial, as, as, as Harold mentioned. Um, I think a lot of scholars refer to it more as settler colonialism now as well. Um, but this structure, um, which, you know, both um, is about land prospecting, taking land from Indians. It's, it's, it's set up that way. Um, it, it is reinforced by the uh, emerging racist hierarchies, you know, race as a concept and racism is just emerging or being solidified in this time. Um, so I think that those things are happening in, uh, together. And I think that functions in very, by creating Indians as um, wards and kind of constructing Indians as children who need to be saved from themselves, right? In the same language being, you know, just after the four townships, we have Merck versus Tomer, right? Which is the imbecility of Indians. So the, the, is the language they use that we are imbeciles and cannot somehow function. Um, is reinforced, these mutually reinforcing structures of extraction of land for the wealth of particular white people, and then the sort of furtherance of this colonial enterprise um, through the racial hierarchies, which were built out of, you know, religious hierarchies from the doctrine of discovery. Okay. Okay. So I think, yeah, so I think, you know, that that structuring in the early parts of Maine is, is a really important thing for people to con connect. And I know we'll talk more later. We will. Right. Uh, Carol, two minutes. Very briefly. Um, 1827, uh, I'm a man who likes details um, and because I think the larger narrative is based on these data points. And in this case, the 1827 legislature, I'm reading here, quote, the legislator having the custody of all the property of the Indians, it remains for them to designate how it shall be expended and all allowances beyond the $500 provided by law would require their sanction. 
Here you see a text that has been inserted 1827, just before the dispossession of the townships, whereby in essence, the consent would be nice if the tribes give consent, but they already have been robbed of the right to make that decision because it's already arrogated by the legislature in 1827. And it just jumps out at you when you look at the larger structures that Darren was just uh, summarizing. And then you go back to the data points and start saying, hey, something I have overlooked before suddenly jumps out as being significant. And that's the nice thing about uh, what we call in, 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 in academia, the deductive inductive approach that you kind of go back and forth between the hypothesis and you have an idea about it, you go to the databases and then you get um, suddenly, suddenly things that become significant that you hadn't seen before. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating uh, topic, Donna, that you have uh, been drilling into. Uh, and we will be discussing more uh, next next month, I promise. Uh, so we have to uh, to say uh, goodbye for this time. Uh, so I want to uh, thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Abenaki Windows. I want to thank Professors Harold Prince and Darren Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Ralph Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dream On. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and Joel Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>